0: Hey Jason, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Dan. How are you?
0: Pretty good. You want to just talk about steak, or uh,
1: should we do some? <laughs> yeah, do, do we correct those those show notes from last time?
0: Yeah, I'll make
1: yeah, sure okay. that they're uh, corrected. Yeah, because yeah. that. I mean, what's funny about it was it's like a, lot a spoiler, of people. really. Ah, well, you know, I got uh, <laughs> some comments. Some comments I got were were um, <laughs> it ranged it ranged from people. So I think in the podcast we gave them the heads up, like, oh yeah, whoops, this is
0: going to be about steak. Uh,
1: yeah. Um so one comment was, Oh, you know, I, I regularly listen to your podcast, I enjoy it, but this is the first time I was able to send it to some other people that don't care about mobile edge cloud. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I could actually, you know, it's like, oh no, some interesting points on how one actually, you know, take the temperature down of something before you smoke it and you know, you get a longer sort of smoke time and and uh that and then and then on the other end became ones where it's like, Oh, I, I think you uploaded the wrong podcast, by the way. So,
0: well, I think oh. uh, I think people need a bit of variety in their life, in their podcast life, <clears throat> and they can expect yeah. from. I think I don't think that's the only time we'll talk about something that's not specifically about, you know, edge computing and edge native applications and telco network services and.
1: Yeah, because I mean, we're uh, terminals.
0: Terminals. <laughs> Did you get yeah. a
1: new terminal, by the way? Have you
0: got a new the new Apple terminal?
1: Uh no. No, I've not. No. Um.
0: Mm-mm. I haven't. No, neither have I. Yeah, sorry. Were you excited by the uh we can talk about this. It's computing. Were okay. you excited by anything Apple announced earlier in the week? Anything um uh, feel like is a must buy for you?
1: A must buy? Mm-hmm. No. No. Um I haven't been using so but since uh we all have iPhones in the house. Uh we all have Apple Watches. Um and uh, meaning even the the kids and they all have we all have the highest end Apple Watches cuz I literally do things like check the kids' heart rate and oxygen saturation while they're in school, you know, <laughs> type make sure they're like, live or something. I mean, uh yeah, healthy. so we we well, you know, it's pretty cool cuz I can do find my and I know where my kids' watches are. And (laughs) I also stuck those uh, Apple things in their backpacks and their shoes and that kind of thing too. So I literally sit around, I know where their shoes are, their backpacks are, and I know where their watches are. And hopefully all three of those things are together. And, um, But uh, I literally do that from five-year-olds got an Apple watch. Ten-year-olds got an Apple watch, 12-year-olds got an Apple watch, 20-year-olds got an Apple watch, everyone's got an Apple watch. Um, Because... uh, Big brother is more like big daddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we all have iPhones. Yeah. Uh, I have a Samsung S20 Note uh, as well. It's quote unquote the work phone. Um, but we all have iPhones. Um, MJ, my wife, uses a Apple laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not, I have not used an Apple laptop. And we have, and everyone's got iPads, uh, you know, in that. But uh, um I'm. I've. I've been predominantly on a PC in the last four or five years. Yeah, it's, like a Windows PC. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is. Uh, I, I would expect
0: uh, that in the industry that you're in, and a lot of the people that are probably listening are, uh, I would say, PC no, Windows not, users. No.
1: That that's no. It got a little like more boomer than that. Um, I'd rather have an Apple laptop than an Apple. Um desktop if you will right um, but i'm very particular on the type of mechanical keyboard that i like mm, to use yeah and i, I like man. to use a mouse and so um you know so literally i have things where you come to my house and there's like keyboards i've made there's a dozen keyboards all sort of sitting there that are of the same type because if something happens i can just swap the keyboard out i truly truly, 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 truly hate the flat-ass little fucking keyboard that Apple put on those laptops.
0: It's terrible. It's a mistake. It's an error.
1: I mean, the... um, But that's fixed now.
0: They're not like that anymore. They're better. You know what?
1: You don't care. It's too late. Too fucking late. Yeah. Too late. I I knew you were going to say that. It became one of these things where it's like, oh, well, you know what? Um, Yeah, no thanks. Sorry. I mean, you just... I mean, it's one of these, it's a, the, the, the sort of circa 2017, 18 keyboard changes they did Mm -hmm. to the laptops. Just, I had one you know, like have one for work because, you know, we predominantly use Macs. I can't type on it. So I end up, even the Mac, I end up just plugging into a monitor and using another keyboard because Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't, I, I just hate typing on it. I can't say, I can't, I can't, I can't type on it. And, um, and, uh, I just hate the way it feels. And, and it's funny because, uh, you know, a friend of mine, you has one of these like, you know, back 2015, he like loved the keyboard and the laptops, bought like half a dozen of them. He stays on that laptop. Mm. Like he just has literally just different, gets old, throws it away. He's got another one in the box waiting there in the closet. It's been, uh, you know, just sort of hoping, hoping the battery stays charged or the battery stays okay for, for that period of time. But, but, uh, yeah, the the keyboard assist. They lost me on the keyboard. Sorry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. So, uh, but uh, of course, what they're doing from chip perspective now in their PCs is mm-hmm. exceptionally interesting, and what they're doing from a display perspective is exceptionally interesting. Um, but um, uh, I don't feel a lot of urgency around buying their laptops or pcs to be honest um watches no problem iphones no problem We've got apple tvs on every tv no problem um you know apple tv plus no problem or actually we do the whole everything together and they got like apple one they call it now or something like that um but uh that's all no problem but um but uh, now they lost me on the they lost me on the PC side because of that keyboard. Oh, and the trackpad. Am I the only one that finds this like multi part? I you know you know like somehow I missed the memo <laughs> on how the fuck these trackpads work now on, on the Mac laptops. I mean they're gigantic. Apparently there is three embedded buttons in it you can sort of not see. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't even know how to right click on the fucking thing anymore. So so literally, I just remember getting, you know, we started Mobile Ajax January 1st, 2018. You know, we get brand new Mac Pro laptops, open the goddamn thing. I hate the way the keyboard feels. And no matter where I touch the trackpad, something very different happens. Then I watched some little video on it. You know, I felt like an 80-year-old person who's never used a computer versus somebody who literally works in the industry and does software and hardware. And I'm like, I don't, what is this trackpad? Right. So I'm sitting there now. Now I I'm I got a normal keyboard and mouse plugged into the fucking thing. And then I go, oh, okay, well, now it's a little bit further away. So I should get a monitor. So then you get a monitor. And then, you know, and then it goes, okay, well, then why, why, why throw the fucking laptop away? Plug a different computer into this whole thing. <laughs> I'm serious, but I'll tell you too. I hate the, um, windows has an inability to keep configurations. They're very frequent software updates. You never know what the software update's going to do. Right. Um, you know, I've, 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 I've never, you know, on the PC side what's funny is I've never had to do things where, I mean, I got each and every PC I have has, you know, a little Samsung drive in it that's got a full recovery thing on there you know, that I regularly sort of go and do because I've never, no, I've never had, you know, you know, I mean, the last few years that I've been using windows, just the fact where you sit and it's like, why well, I can't I just, all I did was shut it down and restart it the next day. And it you lost, trying to Tell me you can't keep my volume settings. Just my volume settings. That's why the fuck's the volume set to like 80? <laughs> you know, like, it, it, just, the, the configurational drift that you have on windows machines is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And then um, shit stomps on each other in sort of like weird, weird ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, um, um, I find it very disappointing from a software perspective, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense of configurational drift and the unreliability of updates and upgrades. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But, but, that's just me. What I want to what are you going to do? 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 What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Speaking of the windows of edge computing, I saw that Verizon launched private mobile edge computing for enterprise at AWS Outpost.
0: That's <laughs> true. They did. But before we do that, I mean, don't you want to talk about the 2021 overview of edge computing and edge native applications that you were in for GSMA? It's coming uh, up and give a little preview, a the, little teaser. The
1: video. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, uh, um, I did make a video that mm-hmm. was meant to be like a 10 minute presentation uh, for Mobile World Congress LA, mm-hmm. uh, and it was one of the GSMA groups, mm-hmm. uh, what I was trying to do there was set up what the fundamental question is, mm-hmm. where the fundamental question is, what new services should operators be launching? That's the top level question. Right. What new services should they be launching? Right. Uh, and, um, that can be a hard question to answer, uh, if you don't have a framework for answering it. So, you know, so I was trying to do in that was sort of get down to this, what's going on, why is it happening? How should I think about it? And the sort of how I should think about it was largely, um, you know, about, okay, once you think this way then it allows you to actually go and design a portfolio of edge-native services that all the use cases do in fact need and that we as an industry have a right to do. Because that's that's the fundamental question, right? Uh, Because when people talk about the entry of public cloud and hyperscalers and what's the role of mobile network operators and everything else, you have to be able to develop a worldview where you say "There, there are things that we have a right to do hmm and perhaps not just a right, but we have a duty to do them as an industry mm-hmm. and uh, and um I think you know the the worldview that I propose there in the sense of um what edge devices look like, edge native applications, edge native application services, edge native infrastructure services, edge infrastructure, you know, and then what it means to be cloud native in the sort of same layers, mm-hmm. the distinction between edge and cloud. Uh, you know, it's simple but complete enough that people can use it to move forward with portfolio ideas. And I find it to be a better structure of things and a better way of thinking than the typical far edge, near edge, toco edge, enterprise edge, like, you know, right. sort of adjectives in front of edge. It doesn't quite tell you what to go and do because, you know, my my bias is always, okay. I hear you, you know, someone goes and says, well, you know, the world works this way or what we sort of, okay, I hear you, you know, like listening to a physicist, now I'm an engineer that's got to go build something and ship it and support it, okay, what, what is that (laughs) and why would somebody feel compelled to use it is always what I, that's, that's just, that's just my permanent, you know, sort of like perspective in that. And when you go and you say, well, far edge, near edge, toco edge, enterprise edge, cloud edge, you know, all these you know sort of things, you go, okay, well, how do I turn that into a portfolio of products that people are excited to use? You know, there's nothing directional about it. Um, you know, and so you know, I wanted to categorize things the way a product and a portfolio person would categorize the space. Uh and you know, the good news is that. You've had really good product and portfolio people go and categorize like the services that exist at Amazon Web Services, for example. that's very clearly a a customer centric product manager driven view of the world you know type sort of thing uh, And you know I think the way that i've I've structured the thinking and edge lines up with that too, so it it looks like a continuation of it. then you sort of add the you know edge is different in the following sort of technical and, and economic ways, Mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, you know, we're okay. But, but that's, that's the, that's the whole purpose of that. It's 10 minutes. You Um, just took 10 minutes explaining what it was. Yeah. A little meta discourse. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The description of the thing was as long as the thing itself.
1: What was meandering?
0: I like it better. Mm. Maybe. So uh, Verizon has launched a private mobile edge uh, computing for enterprise data mm-hmm. database outpost, But I have a note here that Jeff emailed yeah. us. Oh, yeah. And with his commentary that Verizon oh. may have just missed the edge point, uh, meaning yeah. that they failed to address the multi-operator reality, uh, saying yeah. that all AWS does for Verizon is to help shortcut network definitions by deployments that are static to wavelength sites, local zones, and availability zones. Yeah.
1: And the Jeff no, is I, I raising uh, the question,
0: hang on, he's raising the question yeah. of how this will scale operationally.
1: I think um, the Verizon strategy and Edge is a very good example of um, what it is that you do when you're not really going to uh, do this. So, you know, <laughs> so meaning um, they're doing it entirely on their own. Um, it's just for them. It's just for their end customers, and they're doing it just with Amazon. Uh, And then there's very clear conflict even when you listen to Amazon and Verizon people talk together, you know, in the sense of, um, you know, you hear the AWS people say, well, you know, if the Verizon thing doesn't work for you, just use our local region in Boston. Uh, You know, and so... um, I think it's uh you know it it's it, it's 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 perhaps a company appropriate way for Verizon to do edge mm-hmm. and by company but it does but they also did cloud mm-hmm. in a company appropriate way. They spent tens of billions of dollars trying to do it, and they fucked it up for exactly the same reasons they're going to fuck up edge in my opinion mm-hmm. uh It's just a repeat of it, so there's something you know maybe sort of cultural there um about it. I mean, you know, in, in, in contrast, you know, because I, I think from a almost a a mindset and philosophical worldview um you know we've been doing it at Mobile Edge X and, and Deutsch Telekom and the larger consortium of operators is on the exact sort of philosophical opposite end of this. I mean perhaps you could call us communists and these guys are straight up, you know um and nihilistic libertarians. Uh, you know, sort of the other <laughs> end of the spectrum. Well, yeah. You know, but um, you know, there's um um you know, it's 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 okay. I mean sometimes what companies do is they say, well, you know, we need to figure this out for us and we're gonna go do it for us and we're gonna go do it and execute it for our enterprise customers today and we'll just figure out something that's appropriate for that. Fine. Um, but when you can't even do a clear differentiation between what you're doing and what an AWS can do for somebody and how it's going to look in sort of the future, I don't know why anybody would sit down and say, well, let's go do, you know, something in the U S that's of any scale whatsoever. I mean, it's, I guess it's fine if you're doing a single factory or a single building or a collection of things in a given spot, fine, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I find it, uh, like I said, philosophically the polar opposite of what I've been saying uh, for the last few years for the industry, uh, and um, I think it's the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, that someone over there but is I, listening. But I, but I, but I, but I, I don't care to be honest. I mean, you know, meaning well. I mean, it's, hopefully it's, for them, for them. Uh, I don't think it'll matter. I don't think it'll matter. You're so because, pessimistic about this whole. thing. No, I'm not. Because I, I spent, I spent, I spent, you know, 2006 to 2016 around Verizon in the cloud space, mm. and um, you know, we, we, you know, every every 18 months we had a touch point between like a Verizon joint and sort of here you know, I was sort of this and sort of that, and and you know, just watched them how they went and sort of executed on cloud. And then I went and watched how they executed on a network platform, and now I'm watching them execute on edge computing. And each one of those three, I see similarities that must be mythological and culturally baked into that organization. You get understand what I mean? Yeah. So you know I mean it's a little bit where you know a warlike culture will always <laughs> sit around and say, "How do we go?" <laughs> you know, they'll always use war analogies. Sure. Of course. You know, it's, it's, it's like our, our Jeff, our British friend, everything always comes back to like a world war two analogy, a football also known as soccer analogy. And then there's always something about Nazis. Like it's, it's like living in, you know, the first Indiana Jones movie for your entire life. Uh, you know, type, type, type sort of thing. The, the, uh, you know, Verizon's going to do the Verizon thing. I, 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 um, I guess. And, um, but, you know, it's okay. I said, I understand it. So, you know, I understand why they're sort of doing it, but it's a little bit where, um, you know, it's not like it's as offensive as, you know, it's not like edge computing is their, their dog and we're in a dog park and I just saw them kick their dog. You know, it's not offensive. So what they're doing is not offensive. I understand why they're doing it. I understand that it may feel appropriate within their context of their company. I do, however, think that um, it's not a viable long-term strategy and approach. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Is that opinionated enough, Dan? That's exactly (laughs) what I want. I think that's what the audience is here for. I know it's
0: what I'm here for, Jason. I don't know. Maybe I I can't speak for the audience, but. As your part of, I am part of your audience, and that's exactly what I want to hear. Oh, okay. Well. Telefonica. Mm, nice plans to extend Trust OS across its entire atrebo managed infrastructure inventory platform by 2022. I hope our audience is sitting down for this announcement. All From right, the okay. operational point of view, the platform will record. Uh, let's see. We'll record. Issues, service levels, traffic data statistics, et cetera, et cetera, and all information relevant to changes to the infrastructure while in service, all related processes will be transparent, Jason, including maintenance <sighs> operations, additions, or removal of radio equipment and leasing updates. Mm. Yeah. But that you know what? They have broader aspirations in blockchain, including tokenization of towers via NFTs. Nice. That can be used to sell tower rights or enable new tower investment vehicles. Right. While the NFT opportunity has yet to be defined, it potentially provides the ability to buy and sell tower interests in a way that allows network operators and tower companies to maximize the value of their assets. NFTs for towers.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. Yeah, it's I mean, kind of I've, interesting, I've, I've, You huh? know, what's funny is I've always been rather poo-poo on, not poo-poo. Um, to me, a lot of the blockchain stuff's always been very obvious. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we've. As you know, I mean you 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 develop software, Dan. Have you ever taken a hash of something? Of course. Yes. And you've stored that hash, right? Yes. Okay. Well, one of the ways you can store like store a hash is in a distributed hash table, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And then as you go and actually make a tree of these hashes, you can actually take one of the leaves of these trees and have a hash that describes that, that leaf not just the hash, but the entire context that it sits in. Right. And then you can actually go and do, and this is exactly what's done within a file system integrity, for example. Uh, So, when you do like copy on write on a hash table that is local to a system uh, and you have hashes of all your files, that's how you do file system integrity. If you now have a distributed hash tree across many systems, it's how you do distributed file systems. And so, you know, literally the way we've been doing distributed file systems for, you know, the last 20, 30 years of doing Mm. distributed file Mm -hmm, systems. mm Almost the question is like, how do you start having a network addressable, network queryable, distributed hash table? Mm-hmm. That's all that's all this blockchain stuff is. And so, having a um, and the whole root of what you are trying to do is to sit there and say that we know the integrity of something and we can track it. You know, so that trace, track, locate, you know, the, the, those types of things. And so, if you look at the classic. You know, quote unquote security models, you know, if you will. You say, well, we got confidentiality, we have integrity, we have sort of access. You know, the whole market has been around confidentiality and access, you know, encrypting things and then not letting people log in or people logging in uh, and, you know, what they have access to in that. If you actually then sort of start taking the integrity approach, well, taking an integrity approach has always, of course, required you not just to have the hash of something but to go and verify that hash. Right. And the best way to verify that hash is to take the hash and the whole leaf of that and query something. And so, you know, we've basically seen in blockchain is just the next step of distributed hash tables, linked timestamping, you know, sort of every, everything else like that. Um, going and having a idea that you have a, a bunch of physical assets, each of which has a physicality to them, and now they're going to have, um, you know, the sort of, they're, they're going to have a, a hash that goes and describes that. And then you're going to roll that up into a tree and then a tree of trees and so on. And then you're going to make that into a software based system that lets you have end to end integrity of that transact on it. That's great. You know, and so I think what's been interesting about efforts like this is, you know, at the end of the day, any time that you can have a highly transactional system uh, go and do... Any time you can have a system go do transactions on a proprietary data set, that is the very nature of all software-based commerce. Period. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and... um I think that's great, you know, so if we, if we go and sit down and say that, you know, within, you know, largely the asset management here, it's fair to say that traditional asset management around your towers and sites and everything else, that structurally, the way that you would abstract all of your physical assets was not a system that you were capable of doing like high frequency transactions and trade on, right? So cool. Wonderful. Um I don't think it's you know what's always been funny to me about blockchain, quote unquote in particular, is there is you know, it's one of those quote unquote technologies that people don't understand was just sort of like step number nineteen of what's been going on for a very long time. You know, it's a little bit like when people sit around and think about um, you know, quote unquote, you know, AI. Um, being like brand new uh and and it's uh and then it's like well what we 're really talking about is artificial neural you know networks in that, and uh you know we're largely able to computationally do things today that were described in the seventies and eighties, you know sort of even in that right you know that it's not quote unquote brand new mm-hmm. uh you know from there that a lot of these things you know will spend. Uh, you know, quite quite a number of time. I mean, it was in '86 that Rumelhart, Hinton, and Williams, um, really sort of showed that these types of um, um, back propagation efforts and you know whether you could do the the these sort of you know training methodologies. I mean, that was that was really done in '86, and and um, and then of course, 2006. You know, Jeffrey Hinton. um, you know did sort of like the this this next level representation of 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 what that would look like and here's how it'd be computationally possible. And then you know by 2016 we start seeing GPUs showing up and doing those types of things. You know, it's been funny about blockchain is people act as if somehow distributed hash trees is <laughs> like, oh uh, I mean so literally it's sort of like page eight of you know a data structures class that literally you take in the first two years of school. I mean the idea that oh, look, we take a hash of a of a digital asset, and the digital asset can represent a physical asset, and, oh, we need to register that hash somewhere so that we can actually have a system that doesn't require a human being to, like, manually verify the hash. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, because it's funny, because people will go, it's like, oh, download a piece of software, and they'll put the hash there next to it and tell you, take the hash and compare these two hashes and make sure these two hashes are okay. Right. Like, really? That's the level of sophistication we have? That could just be a queryable thing. (laughs) So, um, you know, and I I, I often will tell people that, you know, look, when you go and give something a a unique numerical address, like an IP address, that's a unique numerical address for an endpoint, you know, on the internet. Um, We even have names that map to those. That's what the domain name service goes and does. It's a queryable thing. And so being able to actually make integrity... And and um, hashes a internet scale queryable thing, you know, for the purposes of distributed, you know, asset tracking and trading on that is fucking great. I mean, go ahead. You know, so good on Telefonica. Good use of blockchain. Good use. It's even like, well, it's even funny too because you go and even the NFT part where you go and you might get the urge to like roll your eyes Mm. no no i get it yeah that's okay yeah nothing offensive about that so good job telephone you know so plus one Telefonica, minus one verizon (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) minus one verizon okay so uh google who is as you uh know created kubernetes are kind of focusing on um multi-cloud capabilities so at their annual Mm -hmm. cloud conference this month google cloud they made a uh general release of a data warehousing service and with this its users can tap into data that exists in a different cloud Mm -hmm. where the cost of storage would be lower so in the future i think the thinking is that it might not be about um well, it says right here, let me read this little statement. It says, so the, so the future may not be so much about users being assisted in making a cloud jailbreak to get lower prices, but being given the ability to shop around their multi-clouds without penalties or performance issues to buy specific yeah. disaggregated services.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the funny thing about the, those kind of rationales is um, um I think – rare. Yeah, so what's funny is multi-cloud to me – is I'm not entirely sure it's something that an organization purposely does for financial and business reasons. I think it's a state that people are in and it's just a different phrase for heterogeneity. You know, so meaning we have a heterogeneity. Most people have in their IT environment or development environment, They have a certain degree of heterogeneity there, and the heterogeneity, it's it's unavoidable. So even if you go and standardize on individual components, those components will eventually be end-of-life and replaced by new components, right? So then you still have heterogeneity over time. You might be all Intel chips in x86, but you have three or four different versions of the chip in your infrastructure with different capabilities and capacity and everything else, right? So the heterogeneity will always exist. And and I think the the question a bit more is, you know, realistically, what type of heterogeneity are we dealing with where heterogeneity is a source of complexity? And um, just like how, you know, the second law of thermodynamics has Mm -hmm. us, you know, going towards, you know, entropy and that type of thing, any software and IT system over time tends towards greater complexity. And so to me, it becomes a bit around what is the source of complexity in your overall environment? Um, now, source of complexity, doing multi-cloud is more complex than doing single cloud. And it becomes, of course, even more complex when you think about you know, what if you're doing not just Amazon, Microsoft, Google, or Amazon and Google, but now you're doing two or three versions of different APIs and some of which are differentially deprecated by Google versus AWS and so on, right? So there's this constant work that you're doing because of that quote-unquote complexity. I don't think that businesses purposefully do that complexity from a business and financial KPI perspective. I think it's a situation they get in as a consequence of the way they're incentivizing their development organizations. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if people are incentivized to launch mm-hmm. and go yeah, and do, then you know, you know what happens. It's like, you know, development organizations, you know, it's like, it's, it's like sand. You know, it's just going to, it's, you know what I mean? It, meaning it's, you're going to pour, it's just going to go in everywhere. I mean, they're just, they're just, you're just going to do whatever it is you need to do mm-hmm. to be on time. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because we all know you get, you get features, quality, or schedule. Those are the three things, right? You only get two of them. So nobody wants to ship low quality and people want to be on time. And so it's going to become a features and capability standpoint. Now, what you might actually have very often is that from a development perspective and a developer perspective, they're able to stay on schedule and do things high quality by using and sort of cherry picking different SaaS and higher level services from different providers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you very often end up where there's an application there and yeah, it's using this thing from Google and this thing from Amazon and this thing from Microsoft and your ops team is using PagerDuty and it's using Google Analytics and, you know, when you go and you launch a given thing, like, I mean, you run fireside.fm, that's not single vendor. From your underlying like technology supplier, right? No, it's inherently across, and you do that just based on whatever it is you need to sort of get you know go and get done, right? So I find it, you know, I just wonder, uh, you know, because like in the case of mobile edge X, being multi cloud and hybrid is just something we do, like functionally, Mm -hmm. you almost drive it as a feature. We never ever position ourselves from a marketing perspective as being multi cloud or hybrid cloud management. We don't do that because we don't have a a legacy position like say a VMware does where they want that to be the case so that they always stay relevant versus somebody migrating away from them, right? So we're not we're not in that kind of spot. And then um I don't think people I think the majority of the time people are multi-cloud as a consequence of the way they're actually incentivizing people and driving their own schedules than doing it on purpose. <laughs> do you get what I mean? Yeah. So then um, you have to wonder from a marketing approach, like who exactly is that targeting? You know, because let's say, for example, you say, okay, we're going to go and come out with this type of positioning or we're going to come out and do this. And then this, this, this stuff always fascinates me, by the way, when you start thinking about who exactly in an organization are you selling to? And then, what stage is that organization in? Okay. To me, the multi cloud type positioning and the economic optimization around that is a pitch that you're fundamentally giving up to a CFO. Okay. And it's a CFO within an organization that's gone too far in this and things are fucked up. So now the CFO is trying to quote unquote fix IT. That's who you're basically pitching to, in my opinion. You know, for that kind of that kind of messaging. Now, what it means is that you've now purposely gone and picked companies in a shitty spot, which companies in a shitty spot tend to be shitty customers, mm-hmm. right? So, but that's just my opinion. There's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, uh, um, but, but I think it's, you know, there's just a, you know, what it is, is, uh, you know, I'd recommend people getting to be more knowledgeable Mm -hmm. about programming cultures.
0: What do you mean by programming cultures? Um, cult, the cultures of programming or programming let me ask you for culture
1: let, let me ask you this so fireside fm is written in what predominantly ruby on rails ruby on rails and so it's ruby mm-hmm. right yeah how many how many how many python people do you hang out with <laughs> not not that many like not that many, right? Yeah, not that many. So literally and then how many like Django people do none, you know? None. None, none. They're not okay. they're not well. Python's Python's just as popular or more popular. Well it's than, way
0: more popular than Ruby. Than Ruby is. Okay. Yeah, And then Django they're, they're teaching Python to all of yeah. the
1: kids that are so in what, College. So what what fundamentally was it about Python and Django? Or what was fundamentally was it about Ruby on Ruby on Rails that just made you like pick one or the other? I mean, that's a
0: great question. Back when I... I have,
1: sp- a, I have, a, I have, I have a very old... Because remember, I was you know in, involved in both of those. A lot more involved in Ruby on Rails. I mean, the funny thing about Ruby on Rails was it was even just... Uh, uh, I think it was literally in the last year that I finally stopped uh, being the admin on all the, the mailing list and a bunch of... <laughs> Are you, you know, kidding? Structure. Really? No, no. Because even literally, there was like a few things that were left. And then I, I get this email from uh, Jeremy Kemper. You know, he's been a long time core committer there. And he's like... And he literally was like admin at something, you know, and it's like, who's this going to? And I was like, it's me, man. He's like, oh my God. Okay. It's still you. Yeah. 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 I've just been, you know, sitting here clicking buttons for 15 years. It's fine. You guys can do it now. (laughs) The, uh, um, but what's funny there is I think, I think there are literally the way that Python is, um, in the case of Python, whitespace means something absolutely and that turns okay. a lot of people in off. the case of Ruby whitespace does not mean things however um, there's still the way that rails is written and I remember this one because probably one of the best things is to go back and look at something like freebsd's port upgrade mm. circuit for 2005 right um, that is written in Ruby mm-hmm but it it looks like it's written in a variation of... It was a port from Perl. So it's written in Ruby. You can recognize it's Ruby. But it literally looks like a Perl app. Right? Mm-hmm. And then when Rails came out, Rails has a fir- certain syntax to it. And this is where I think the power of Ruby very much was, is that Ruby allows for metaprogramming to occur. You can take Ruby and basically turn it into a different like syntactical language that you're going and using. Um, Python has an opinion on that. Yeah. So R- Ruby on rails has a look and a structure to it. And I remember when the first, like when David put the first thing out to Ruby Lang, uh, you know, on that, cause I was doing a lot on FreeBSD and doing stuff with port upgrade and, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, Everything sort of around Ruby. There, some of the old comments from, and this is in like 2005, was, "Hey, this dude's written a ton of Java. This is really Java looking. Mm-hmm. This isn't Ruby." Hmm. Seriously, you had Ruby purists right, back then. Because if you then, think
0: about the Ruby purists back in those days, Ruby was this go-to system administration, network administration language. It was
1: literally referred to as Pearl. Yeah, Pearl. Pearl's was... prettier younger sister. <laughs> right. Uh, and you had like, why would do Pearl? Like why a Pearl when you can do a gym, right? You know, people say stuff like that. And, uh, a lot of people were moving from Pearl to, um, Ruby, you know, in that sort of way. And you had that camp, but then culturally what happened because of Ruby on rails is you had a ton of people, the majority of people that came into Ruby on rails were coding Java for a living. hmm Uh, including me, including you. And so you had the entire sort of influx of Java people through Ruby on Rails into the Ruby community, and then with the success of Ruby on Rails, largely because Java is just a bigger language, bigger community. So even mm. if you pull a pinch of that off, you sort of go and do that. Now, the funny thing about that is that is entirely an entirely different community of people, and people that entered into Python. So you literally end up, I I think the Python community versus the Ruby community, but in particular, the post-Rails Java-influenced Ruby community, Mm -hmm. the post-Rails Ruby community, Um, and the Python community, it comes down literally to, uh, do you think white space should matter or not? Yeah. (laughs) And do you want the language to... Do you, do you want the type of flexibility where you're going and you can do metaprogramming on it or not? Uh, and I think that literally comes down to a great example of programming cultures. And so when you have programming cultures and development cultures, um, you have just sort of inherent rules to that. And then literally your set of activities, your behaviors, uh, your approaches, um, you know people's attitude within your development organization and that mm-hmm. type of thing, mm-hmm. you often will get software and infrastructure systems that are a consequence of that. They're not rationally designed. Multi-cloud marketing assumes that you're dealing with somebody who's rationally designed a multi-cloud strategy. I see. Uh, and then if it's anchored in financial and economic things... Um, then, um, the question always comes like, okay, well, for somebody to then execute on that, well, their financial economic and their development cultures have to be very well aligned. And I don't find that to be the case in the majority of organizations, in my opinion. Okay. <clears throat> so
0: let me see if there's
1: another, cause
0: I know we're hitting our, uh, time for like the wrap things up, but there's a couple other good ones in here. Mm. Okay. Um okay, so Azure. Yeah. Um Microsoft, this this there's an article here that is entitled it is this is on telecomtv.com. Mm. <laughs> Azure edges closer to the telco model. The ambitions of Microsoft oh. Azure and the other two main hyperscalers to become telco enablers in a 5G and increasing the cloud-native world has made many in the telecoms industry slightly nervous. Yeah. But now, yeah. acceptance may be breaking out and in their increase increasing reliance on cloud-native virtualization for 5G. Telcos have essentially handed their telco future over to cloud technologists in general and the hyperscalers <sighs> in particular and may be fast coming to terms I with think that us let's, let's,
1: let's, let's, So... Um, So I think there's a bunch of sensationalism that still occurs around the telecom and hyperscale market. And then I also think that Microsoft doing the acquisitions they've done to me, there's an insight around them. That's very specific to Microsoft that people don't cover. So this is a very typical article that you see in the space, but Mm. I, I find it to be the type of article that somebody rapidly writes 600 words because they do it for a living and they need to put some content out. Um, I don't so one. Let's let's back up and ask a more fundamental question. The fundamental question is Microsoft uh, we'll start with the statement. Microsoft, Amazon, and Google are some of the most innovative investors in emerging technologies, right? Uh, they are companies that have market caps over a trillion dollars. Um now let's get to the question. Do we want the largest technology investors to ignore our industry? Question mark. And the answer is no. No. Okay. Now, how do we want to engage with them? couple options. They are our customer. We are their customer. Mm-hmm. Both. We do stuff together. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, well, Proposal in the hyperscaler space is them being a vendor to us, in the mobile operator space. Um, well, we just spent the last 25 years brutalizing our vendor community mm-hmm. to where we used to have a lot of choice. There was even US-based networking companies. But, you know, shit like uh, Motorola and Nortel and all, all these all these guys are... Those guys are out of business. Okay. And they're not out of business because they're bad companies or the like, but what you literally had from a procurement regime over the last 20, 25 years is you had a complete consolidation in the vendor community towards global network operators. Right. Um, you have two European companies and a Chinese company that does like all of it. Uh, and now we're talking about architectural changes and opening things up. Now we have the greatest vendor diversity that we've had in 25 years. Great. And the vendor diversity, it's not just startups showing up. It's some of the largest, wealthiest companies in the world showing up. Mm-hmm. So of course we want that. Of course we want that. Why wouldn't you want that? You would want that. Unless you, you, were, af- that. Unless you were afraid yeah. of it. And then, you know, lumping everybody together, you know, Amazon's different from Microsoft and Microsoft's different from Google and Google's different. These companies are all different from mm-hmm. each other. Microsoft you know, let's let's take the whole affirm networks and meta switch networks and that type of thing. Um, I don't think that their synergy case internally would have been dependent on them selling these things to mobile network operators. There's no way that they would have spent that amount of money or had a synergy case like that if it was mobile network operator only. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the opportunity in the 5G, 6G, 7G, 8G space is Enterprises also becoming operators of their own private networks, right? So there's a broader enterprise opportunity where you sit around and say, okay, the mobile network operators are something you can go sell Affirmed and MetaSwitch to, but there's all the other guys you can go and sell Affirmed and MetaSwitch to. Now, how do you want to go do that? So Microsoft in particular is like a top three trusted supplier of probably every enterprise in the world. you went to every enterprise in the world and you said, who's your top three companies that you you buy stuff from? Microsoft's going to show up in that list for everybody. Amazon's not going to show up in that list for everybody. Google's going to show up even less than everybody. But Microsoft's there. So if somebody comes to them and says, hey, we use Microsoft Azure, everyone's on Excel, we're doing this, we're doing that. Uh, We want to build our own private network too. Do you have something there? What's Microsoft going to do? Microsoft's going to refer them to Verizon Enterprise, go use some Ericsson kit, go to this and that and have Cisco roll it in? No. They have, they have the most trusted, direct relationship with those enterprise end customers. So why would they have some traditional telco vendor give some shit to a mobile network operator who then goes and does stuff for an enterprise end customer? Why, would they, why, would they, why, why wouldn't they do what their customers are asking for? So I think things like Affirm Networks and Metaswitch Networks Those are natural acquisitions for Microsoft to do. It wasn't a natural thing for Amazon to do. It wasn't a natural thing for Google to do. It's not a generalized trend within the hyperscaler space. It's very Microsoft-specific, and it's Microsoft-specific because they're top three trusted supplier to every enterprise in the world. And those enterprises came out and said, a very big trend for us is to do our own private networks using 5G plus technologies isn't that something we can get from you almost like a feature and function on what it is that you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? And so they go, ah, of course. That had to have been what that Synergy case was based on. Yeah. Because there's no way, if you look at the amount of money they spent, it's not just because, I mean, Microsoft doesn't do stupid things from a money perspective. It's not like they're wasteful in their acquisitions. They just have a Synergy case. Like, there's no way, you know, if I was at a Samsung Networks or if I was back at Ericsson, there's no way I could have built out a Synergy case for a firm networks and metaswitch networks that would have been justifying an acquisition of the size that Microsoft did. Now, Microsoft went and did an acquisition that size because they themselves have a unique synergy case for this. And I think Mm -hmm. the unique synergy case is them doing this type of business direct with their customers who trust them more than anybody else in the world, not having various sort of jokers in between them and that sort of end customer, then just going and satisfying them. So when you have articles like this that attempt to generalize things for quote unquote hyperscalers, hmm. it's not generalizable across the hyperscalers. When you go and you say that it's somehow going to be generalized across, you know, sort of here and there, and it's and it's Microsoft trying to be a supplier to mobile network operators, I think it misses what had to have been the essential conversation at the the board and executive level of Microsoft, which is their acquisitions in the 5G and core networking space. The synergy case there probably had nothing to do with the telco industry. Right. Sorry. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but you know, it's it's a more nuanced analysis, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you know, and I and I think, uh, um, but it's also more realistic. I can almost, I mean, if I w- if I was sitting on the board of Microsoft, that'd be the conversation we'd be having. Would be that conversation, right? Um, of hey, you know what? it makes a lot of sense, and you know spending a billion five on this makes a ton of sense, too, because this in reality is a 20 billion dollar opportunity for Microsoft, mm-hmm. not for anybody else mm-hmm. that 's fucking fantastic. I mean, when you can actually have a unique synergy case that supports an acquisition that no one else can do at that scale, and you know you 're going to pay it back because boom boom boom, 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 fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, we saw that where a lot of people talk about the irrationality of, you know, EMC and and VMware having bought NYSERA for, you know, over a billion dollars. Right. Yet that has been like, they had a very unique, like EMC had a very unique synergy case for bundling VMware up with everything they were doing from a storage perspective. And then VMware had a very unique synergy case for NYSERA, where, you know, if they're going head-to-head competitively with Cisco bidding for that, I just think VMware would have synergy. I mean, they could have spent three billion dollars on NYSERA and it still would have made sense for them to do it. But it would have never, 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 never made sense for like a Cisco to spend more than four hundred billion dollars on that company. Never, right? And so you you have to you have to take that account when you look at the the corporative aspect of a of, of a company and and there. But the thing about it is for articles like this, then you can't make generalizable statements and that kind of shit, you know, but then the problem then is that people write this shit on post-it notes and then they repeat it all the time. That's fine. What else we got? We, we like, uh, we
0: we got, uh, we got the hybrid cloud tug of war getting real.
1: (sighs) Uh, Um okay. we've
0: got uh, the world's first non-cellular 5G network which is the uh ETSI DECT 2020 or as you would say the Etsy DACT 2020. It has gotten ITU-R or It's oh, Just to stop
1: to stop to stop Dan. You, you
0: don't stop. care about that one. I, nah. Google and Dell offering tools to help operators manage 5G in the edge. Great. I mean Dell's, Dell's new bare Dell's... metal orchestrator. I think we talked about that last
1: time. Yeah, I mean Dell everything think was well, you know, the thing is, is you see um did you see like all the, 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 you see Dell's numbers from this last quarter? Yeah. it's amazing. I was not expecting I mean, that. One, well, one, it was, you know, Apple grew like 9%, but then Dell's like grew 30 plus percent. And then everybody <laughs> else know. got fucking crushed. I know. You know, I, I tell you, I had, I had a couple interactions with Michael Dell back in the joint days and then we were trying to work a, a deal, you know, from the Ericsson thing. Yeah. I mean, one, and it's funny cause I don't know if you've.
0: Hold on. Let me just let me just throw these numbers out, okay? And this is just down the street from me in Round Rock. They're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Just, right just
1: here. go 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 through the Dell stuff because I mean that, that's just it's nuts.
0: Record full year revenue ninety four point two billion. Record full year operating income of 5.1 billion and record non-GAAP operating income of yeah. 10.8 billion. Record cash flow from operations of 11.4 billion. Record client solutions group shipments revenue and operating income. They don't go into detail. Yeah, but they're
1: on up that, like 30 on. I use. know
0: it's 30%. absolutely crazy. No uh, net income 37 percent. Earnings per share
1: diluted 30 percent. And it, and it's relative. The whole rest of the industry stayed flat. I mean, they went and got everything. I mean, they you know, did. but 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 I you know, I think it's people have always talked about Dell Dell's, Dell's supply chain approach being superior to other people's supply chain mm-hmm. approach and having a tremendous amount of, you know, they're looking the supply chain. That's pretty clearly evident in this because yeah. um there were supply chain issues you know, and sort of like for everyone universally for for everybody. Yeah. Clearly not for Dell. No, (laughs) but listen, Um, listen to
0: this, listen to this. Okay. In there. Cause they break this down into their operating segments. So in the client solutions group, I'm not going to go over all the money in each one, but they shipped a record 50.3 million units during the 2020 calendar year, which is an 8% increase year over year in their um, infrastructure solutions group. uh, Revenue for the fourth quarter was 8.8 billion. Uh, which surprisingly was flat year over year, but they've got their storage revenue four point four billion, which was actually a little bit down. And I wanted to ask you what what you thought the reason for that was. That was down two percent. It's not huge, but servers and networking ah, yes. revenue uh, is up three percent to four point four billion. So storage down, but servers and networking. I, think, I mean, uh, they're, they're,
1: but, they're, but there's more. There's more choice in the storage world than ever, and it's a place where you you are people are trying to decide what they're doing on the public cloud and what Mm -hmm. they're doing with Mm -hmm. you and, and, and stuff like that. So I think there's, um, um, I think clearly like the, the PC example is a good example where when they can actually take what Dell's really good at and apply that to one of their segments, then they'll, they'll literally, um, outcompete everybody. Mm -hmm. When you start having a lot of, um, you know, diversity, you know, and choice, if you will, like, oh, do we go with a snowflake on Azure or do we buy this thing from Dell or do we sort of go do this or, you know, what do we sort of go and do, you know, then how does Dell start applying um, what they're good at to that is, is more unclear. And I I think that's the sort of difference in my opinion.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But, um, but, you know, the funny part is I've been, uh, um, you know, I just read his, his new book, Michael Dell's new book, um, you know, which just came out. I think, you know, like October fifth or tenth or something like that. So I, you know, I got a got a copy when it came out and read it, and that's been, uh, um, what an what an interesting run that guy's had. I mean, you know, for anybody that's like has started companies and done things from scratch and done sort of this and that. I mean, you got to admire what they've pulled off at Dell, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and I mean, some big ball stuff. I mean the whole because like this details, you know, picking up EMC and going private and, you know, sort of what was in his own head and yeah. the complexity of it and you they've made some great like, acquisitions, the VMware
0: thing. Uh VMware doing really well too.
1: Yeah, all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's an it's a it's a you know, it's one of these, um yet at the same time, do you ever hear Dell being referred to in the same honored sense of like IBM? Uh I mean maybe they should be. Yeah, but in a lot of ways, it's like Dell's Dell's a um, almost a, you know, a great American technology mm-hmm. company, mm-hmm. but um, they don't seem to get that kind of credit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's pretty. But but so you know, but on your question of them and Google launching things, and that, I think one of their new businesses is in the the you know, of course, in the telco space. And look again, it goes back to the comment I made about um, you know, the quote unquote hyperscalers showing up in it. Um, the, the more, the more large vendors we have entering as vendors to this industry and investing in this industry and helping with these types of, you know, technical and strategic issues, the better. And so, you know, thank God people are finding that, that interesting.
0: Well, if yeah. uh, if our listeners, Jason, would like to read more about these articles, they can visit livingontheedge.show slash 13, which yeah. is the magic number, the lucky 13. <coughs> and 13. Uh, if they would like to, they can send us uh, contact by clicking the contact link there, filling out the little yeah. form. We'll get it. And they can also hit you up on Twitter where you're Jason H. And I'm at Dan Benjamin yeah. or Dan Benjamin everywhere. Uh, but that's it. That's all we got time for. You got to wrap this up. But I... Um, Appreciate your thoughts on this stuff. Every uh, every week I learned something. And this time I learned a bunch.
1: Uh, no, I, I appreciate it as well because um, sometimes I think by talking out loud, so it's helpful. But thank you for that, Dan. Thank you everybody for listening. Very good. We'll be back next week. Have a good one, Jason. You too.